0: Starting today, the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, our Sangha in the Cloud, is open for training. Dojo literally means the place of the way or the place of awakening. You can think of the Buddhist Geeks Dojo as a training ground for the heart and mind, a place where you can put into practice with others those things that support the flourishing of mindful awareness, of compassion, of wisdom. And this isn't just about us, because we're nodes in the network of consciousness. We are the network. Our awakening is tied to the awakening of all things. So what the dojo really is, is your life. Your life is the place of the way. In the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, we simply train to realize this more deeply, more fully, more intimately. BuddhistGeeks.com slash dojo Buddhist Geeks exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology and culture What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Uh, this is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype uh, with a very special guest. In fact, this guest is someone that I put on my wish list to interview on episode 200, which was almost 200 episodes ago. Someone asked me, who do I most want to interview on the show? And for some reason, uh, it's only just happening now, but I'm really grateful that it is, and I'm grateful to have uh, with me today Jack Cornfield. Thank you, Jack, for being here with us. I'm very pleased. Thanks, Vince. Yeah, and you know, this is, um, for me, this is a conversation that's been happening, actually, behind the scenes for a few years, and there have been a number of things that we've talked about privately and that Emily and you have talked about that I was hoping we could get into publicly, and they're things that are very interesting to us and I think will be also quite relevant to the Buddhist Geeks uh, audience. So the first thing I wanted to chat with you about is... Uh, In the tradition that you teach in and that that I've practiced in, it's sometimes called the progress of insight, and you've written about this. Um, I I actually, one of the first kind of accounts of this I read was in your book, A Path with Heart, and this is, I guess, a map or uh, a kind of description of the kinds of things that can happen when people start meditating or start investigating their experience. Um, How would you talk about or characterize the progress of insight?
1: Well, to answer your question, I need to step back and make some context. Um, first of all, I'm not sure who's listening, um, so I can talk about the progress of insight as a map of meditative experiences and insights or stages that happen in deep meditation for people doing a certain kind of meticulous mindfulness practice. I think I want to step back further than that, and maybe we can do it in the time we have, um, and talk about... Uh, enlightenment itself. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a chapter in my book, Bringing Home the Dharma, which is a couple of years ago published recently, about enlightenment, in which I say that the, the problem is that um, we keep it singular. And so the title of the chapter is Enlightenment with an S. Um, just the same as we talk about God, um, and then everybody fights about Allah and Yahweh and Jesus and Kali, and everybody has their particular name for that, which is ineffable. Um And I'm not saying they're all the same exactly, but the fact that we don't add S gets us in a lot of trouble. And in the same way, it turns out that awakening, if you will, and I prefer that word to enlightenment, has... Um, many dimensions to it because it's the nature of consciousness itself. Consciousness in its true state is luminous, transparent, uh, absolutely free, and in a certain way, um, when you experience directly the nature of consciousness and turn attention to it and find your vehicle or your skillful means to open to it, it has a variety of different qualities as it manifests, just like white light that shines through a crystal, um, then breaks down into the spectrum of, of violet and and the red and orange and yellow and green and so forth. So the different dimensions of awakened or, or free consciousness um, have different flavors. Sometimes it's experienced as luminosity and light. Sometimes it's experienced as... Um, the void, as absence, as uh, emptiness, sometimes uh, awakening is experienced as coolness, sometimes awakening is experienced in a way that the entire universe is is known to be love and nothing else. Sometimes it's experienced as perfection, sometimes as vast silence, sometimes as the dance, the cosmic dance, and the music of the spheres in some fashion or other. And these qualities, infinite compassion, boundless love, um, the deepest peace, are all genuine aspects of awakened consciousness. But often what happens is that a person, through their practice or through the circumstance of their life, awakens to this dimension much beyond the small separate sense of themselves and it liberates the heart and brings joy and well-being, and at the same time, they fixate on the, or 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 focus on the dimension they experience, and then they teach it and they say, awakening is all about love, or awakening is all about purity, or awakening is all about emptiness, or fullness of entering life absolutely fully, or awakening is just about compassion. And this crystal or jewel of awakening has all these dimensions, and when we understand it, then we can understand the different paths that lead us to the reality which we are, the reality of uh, we are consciousness itself, knowing itself, being itself, expressing itself out of the void into form. Um, So then the different kinds of practices that one does, if you could say it, are ways to experience this awakened consciousness, um, and in another way to understand it, there are also ways of dissolving or stepping out of the small sense of self that feels separate and abound in time and caught in the individual identity and having the direct experience that we are part of vastness, both we are one with the universe and beyond that, that the universe itself is the Consciousness that comes out of the pregnant void and that is both form and emptiness, and then our particular life, which also needs to be honored, is held in a different way. So, with that as a context in there, then all these different what in Sanskrit is called upaya or skillful means. There are all these different paths or ways to open beyond the self, and for some, it might be might be the sacred medicine of ayahuasca or peyote, um, for some it might be um, chanting all night long. I walked into a temple in Varanasi in, in Benares on the, on the ghats of the Ganges in the most ancient city in the world, Kashi, 5,000 years old, and people have been chanting the name of God in one of the forms like Rama or Krishna. Um, in, um, for seven days and nights without stop, circ- circling this altar, carrying candles, um, and singing in devotion. And I walked into that temple, and it wasn't just a temple on the bank- banks of the Ganges. It was like walking into a, um, a three-dimensional visionary connection between the center of the universe and the galaxies, and the flowing, eternal flowing water of the Ganges. And there weren't people there anymore after those days and nights. There was just luminosity. There was um, the world chanting itself in some way. So there's devotional practice and there's meditative practice and there's the practices of um, selfless service and stepping out of yourself and all different forms um, that move us from a small sense of self to a reality so much bigger. So the Promise of Insight um, describes within the Theravada tradition um, one, uh, one path of practice and how it unfolds um, based in part on the Theravada or the way of the elders of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and so forth but based in part on some of the Ancient Buddhist texts and on the commentaries of the Visuddhimagga, this great famous commentary that describes this in a detailed way, articulated in modern times by one of my teachers, Mahasi Sayadaw. And the way the progress of insight works is that you undertake the practice of mindfully noting every experience in breath, out breath, standing up, moving your foot, lifting, moving, placing it on the earth another breath coming in, a breath coming out, noticing a thought, noticing a feeling. And you learn how to make mindfulness continuous in your practice, usually done on long retreat, but sometimes people try to practice this at home. And the mindfulness can get so refined and attentive that instead of experiencing solid objects, uh, uh, a sound or a thought, or a sensation in the body, like polishing the lens of a microscope, you begin to see that that any experience you notice is made up of tiny micro-experiences, and life becomes pixelated, so that it's not just the color that you experience directly, but with this profound mindfulness, you begin to see sight break up into these little tiny dots of color or um, you can move your arm and it's not an arm moving from one place to another but it's almost like grains of sand of experience and sensations of, um, and sights appearing, dissolving instantly moment by moment that make the experience of what we take to be our human body. And so with its very refined attention and deep concentration, You go through an experience of dissolving the sense of self first with the breath and the body and then noticing thoughts come and go and feelings, and pretty soon everything starts to dissolve. In the process, there is both a sense of release and freedom, great spaciousness that opens, but also periods um, where things feel very unstable um, and frightening. And because the ground of the world starts to dissolve and you see that nothing is solid. And in the end, in this unfolding, you come to a place of profound equanimity. It's called high equanimity, and in the other traditions, um, there are other languages for it. Uh, In the Christian mystics, they speak of a kind of, um, in Latin, the best translation, divine apathy. It's not a not caring, but it is a silent peacefulness of mind that's unmoved by whatever arises. And from this, there's an opening to the unconditioned. All these changing conditions arise and pass, and then the shift is to that space of consciousness itself, silent and past, that knows all things, luminous, um, but is not limited by them, and that's experienced in different ways. So it's a very deep and cool process to unfold one form of awakening and meditation, and the reason it's useful to talk about with you, Vince, um, and with Buddhist geeks, is that the progress of insight, which was articulated in modern times by the Burmese master, Sayadaw, Saido, of my teachers, um, in those countries, in Burma and Thailand and so forth, is usually experienced by people on very long, intensive training retreats where they might take two months or three months or four months, and do nothing but sit and walk in silence and pay closer and closer and closer attention to their direct experience without thought or plan or memory, just what's happening now, and this whole dissolution of self and seeing with a refined lens of the microscope that dissolves the world into its particles and then into vast space unfold. Mm -hmm. Now, um, part of what's interesting and in the conversation about this is that there are some contemporary teachers who've written books on the promise of insight in these last years in America who say that you can have these experiences in a sense more quickly and more easily by beginning to tune yourself to them and to not relegate it to some distant monastery in Burma or those very few people who can do long retreats and even the smaller number in those retreats who are actually able to do this dissolution process. And by way of encouragement um, and from experience, saying these insights into the impermanent nature of every moment, the dissolution of all things, the the death rebirth experience of feeling yourself being completely taken apart into the atoms of experience um, and then into the vastness from which they arise that can also be experienced in your daily meditation if you're devoted to it or you know in some days of your practice and don't relegate awakening to some distant place in some extremely difficult process and the kind of question it raises which is a really interesting one is um are they talking about the same thing as what happened In Mahasi Saido's monastery. Mahasi Saido probably wouldn't agree and wouldn't think it was the same thing um, because he and the teachers around him um, required a profound level of concentration and attention um, that was only developed in. A small percentage, maybe 10 or 15% of the students after long and deep training. And when you're in that state, you are really in an altered, profound, um, process that, uh, um, dissolves your whole, your whole world. And they would say if you have these experiences otherwise in your daily or weekly practice, even if you're devoted, what they are is a kind of light taste of the deeper insights. They're reflection of it, so you can see it in some way, but they're not the full real deal. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not even sure that's right, quite honestly. Um, but they got upset because there were teachers in Thailand, for example, who they claimed were leading people too quickly through the promise of insight by telling them to look for these, you know, the dissolution of things, the arising and passing of things, the the dissolving of uh, thoughts and feelings in particular ways. And they said it has to come spontaneously and it has to be deep or it doesn't really transform you. Mm. Um, The same could be said about deep samadhi jhana practice. For those who know, these are different, very profound meditative concentration states. And it turns out there's actually a big spectrum of how they're experienced. On one end, they can be very... Um, e- more easily accessed, and teachers, very fine teachers like Lee Braydington, who lead retreats, um, gets people in the course of a, a week or ten days to experience the taste of these samadhi states, um, with great benefit. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are teachers like Paok Sayadal who say that it takes two, three, four months, of intense training to begin to get even the first of the jhana experiences really um, deeply known Um, and that means to be able to sit for two hours in one of these concentrated states without a single thought, without any movement, without a a dissolution of any sense of the world around you and a complete absorption into the luminosity or the breath or whatever it is that's your focus. Um, in that spectrum, from the from the very intense, deep jhana where your name can be called out and people can touch you and you don't even hear anything, you're so fully absorbed and that only a small number of people after months of arduous training seem to get to that place. Or the Lee Brazington end where... It's actually accessible to lots of people. There's a whole middle range and it seems the same with the progress of insight. There are different levels that it can be experienced on. For me, what's more interesting is what's its benefit? Does it actually change you? Does it give you transformative insight? Does it change the way you live in the world? Otherwise, it's just another experience. And it would seem from the modern books and teachers who are kind of Changing the way it's looked at and saying you can experience it now, you can have these experiences, you can be enlightened, which I think is (laughs) both an interesting, positive, and and also um, dangerous or 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 questionable way of describing it all. And I don't like the word enlightenment as much as awakening. Anyway, you can be awakened, but you can have these experiences. So uh, wherever you are, if you're really devoted to it. So here's the the thing. I don't know the answer in that spectrum. There just is a spectrum. Um, The question is, does it make a difference? Is it a a deep benefit to that person? Um, And very often it is. Um, The good message to the contemporary teachers of the progress of insight is that you can experience profound changes in your life if you devote yourself through this, even in a, as a householder, in a limited amount of time, um, and that's tremendously encouraging, and I believe it because I believe that practice should not just focus on where you're going to get to some time down the road, but I, I really believe that freedom itself and awakening are an invitation to be experienced here and now. Um, and not put off. Uh, you might call it result in practice, skipping to the end rather than waiting lifetimes or going to the Himalayas or something. To say that um, as you as you enter spiritual practice, you realize that in any moment of birth and death, of each moment's experience, is the possibility of freedom and liberation. And so that's one of the good things that's come of it. The other part, though, is that it gets to be a little... Um, strange because people are saying, well, I'm enlightened, I'm at this stage or that, and all these kind of um, languages that are used for the stages of enlightenment in Burma get um, changed in a way, and um, I think from the Burmese point of view, probably they would say um, trivialized or, or used in a less deep way. Um, On the other hand, I think it's encouraging to people that you can have very genuine realizations, and we all do. Um, We've all had experiences, um, whether it was walking in the high mountains or being there at the birth of a child or listening to an extraordinary piece of music or the mystery of being at the bedside of someone who dies, and all of a sudden you feel their spirit having left the, the body as a corpse, and this mysterious, silent, like the falling, like a falling star, shift of consciousness from being embodied to the mystery beyond incarnation. Um, If you're there in that presence, or if you're taking some sacred substance, or if you're um, listening to a piece of extraordinary music, There are ways in which your whole life can open and you feel yourself at one with the universe or beyond that. Um, Alice Walker writes, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. And so it's not that the, Mystery and the the mystical nature of the world, which is its fundamental nature, is not available to us. By the contrary, it really is. And the different forms of meditation and spiritual practice are to help us remember and return to it. So all that part is good. Um, I wouldn't want to shortchange the progress of insight and necessarily equate um, what people experience on a more... How do I say it? Um, Easy, um, I think in Burma they would probably say uh, a a shallower level with the potential depth that's possible there. Um, Nor is it quite a healthy thing to say, all right, now you are a, a stream winner or you're an enlightened person. You might well be a stream winner. You might well have had a taste of freedom. But those kind of monikers, if you will, and identities, I think, are um, confusing to people unless they're used in a way that empowers you to act um, and live your life as if you're really awake. I do love the practice of pretending you're enlightened um, and acting that way, um, and then someday, who knows, maybe you'll actually just forget that you're pretending and be it. Um, So I've been sort of general in talking about it, not naming any particular teachers or books. Um, But what I've also learned is that the progress of insight um, is one of many descriptions of the way that meditation and dissolving the self and opening to that which is vast and sacred happens. Mm. And some people like to say, well, this is the real one. But that goes back to my original um, crystal uh, of an Enlightenment, plural. There are a lot of real ones. Um, anyway, I think I'm going to pause for a moment and see yes. what I'm talking about. Is interesting? Does it resonate? And ask me some challenging questions about this,
0: if this matters to you or to the listeners. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, have... Lots of questions, and it and it's very. I feel like it's uh, w- what you're covering in the ground is uh, is really important. Um, in part because you know there's this very real practical question that that I run into a lot, which is, um, you know, how do I do this? Like, how do I actually walk this path? Um, whether it's a specific path as you're describing with the progressive insight, or it's just like the path like with a big P. Um, you know, the path of awakening and, and, and the various facets that you're describing. Um, and in particular, you know, how do I walk it given the life conditions that I'm in? And for most people, you know, that we run into, they're asking that question. They, the life conditions are, you know, often we have a job, potentially kids, um, you know, complex, uh, lives where they have to hold a lot of, uh, uh, information and make meaning of a lot of different, you know, inputs, and um, you know, really just, just living the modern life as most people experience it. A lot of obligations and, and you know, family relationships, and all of that. And so then the question or the doubt re- sometimes even comes up: Well, like, is this something I could even do, given how it is sometimes described by some of the texts or by certain teachers who have these, like you said, really high standards for what constitutes uh um a legitimate you know contemplative or mystical experience or, or something that's truly transformative like a like a Pa-Oxida level of jhana um and so i guess that's to me where the question comes from and where i see it being asked from and so um you know it, it does bring up an interesting set of questions um given that well
1: um, yeah let me let me think one the first is that um there's absolutely no question that where you are is where you can awaken. And modern life, even though it's difficult and we get lost in our to-do list and we're hyper, you hyper know, connected and all of those things, underneath it um, there is the possibility in any moment of the experience of freedom um, beyond the self um, and uh, that's available to anyone. Um, when my teacher Ajahn Chah went, who uh, who is a great Thai forest master with whom I lived, um, went to visit the most famous forest master of, of the era, a man named Manajan Man. Ajahn, man. Um, Ajahn Chah, my teacher, had already practiced for 10 years in the forests, and the jungles, living in caves, doing um, jhana, and some body practice dissolving his body into light, having deep insights. Um, surrendering, almost dying many, many times and somehow coming through it. So he went and he bowed and he paid, paid his respects and he said, may I tell you about my practice? And so Mun listened and he told about his experiences saying, I want some guidance. Mm-hmm. And after he finished the account, Mun looked at him and said, "Cha, you've missed the point. Um... And he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, these are just experiences, and it's like going to the movies. You can go to a war movie, or a um, romantic comedy, or a documentary, you know, or um, a, a, a history movie, or so many different kinds, you know, or an adventure movie." He said, "So you had all these different experiences of of light or insights or various other things you passed through." He said, but those are just experiences. The real question is, to whom do they happen? Mm -hmm. So turn your attention, he said, to Ajahn Chah, back from the experiences you have to the one who knows, to the knowing itself, to consciousness. As if to inquire, he was saying, as if to inquire, who am I or what is this? What is consciousness itself? Who is knowing? And it's a little bit like being in the movie theater and you're completely caught up in some great drama and then somebody next to you, you know, rustles and moves or, you know, drops their popcorn and all of a sudden, like waking out of a trance, you realize, oh yeah, movie theater, there's a light on the screen. It's not actually the action, but i have engaged in this um, so fully that I forgot. Um, and so Ajahn Mun said to Ajahn you rest in the one who knows, rest in the pure, timeless witnessing of things, the awareness becomes the one who knows, which is also a phrase used to describe the Buddha or Buddha consciousness. Um, and in that, in that, you will find your freedom. And that freedom um, isn't dependent on a retreat um, or a particular set of circumstances. It's really the freedom that is uh, invited and available to people um, wherever you are, here and now. Um, there are other other ways to practice. One can practice uh, through surrender. Not my will, but thine is the kind of traditional devotional language, um, and uh, it's a way of giving up the kind of grasping of self um, to. Uh, the vastness of the unfolding of life. There are different ways one might practice, um, but they're all possible for people just where you are.
0: So I think that's really helpful, and it's sort of, uh, well, it's both encouraging, which I, I think, you know, to, to be fair to the folks I know who use that term enlightenment, which I do want to talk to you about as well, um, who use that term to describe themselves or encourage people to, to make those kind of claims. Um, I think part of the impulse, at least for the folks that I'm I'm familiar with, like Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Folk, um, who many folks who are listening to this um, have heard interviews with, I think part of the, the impulse there is a kind of encouragement, like this is possible. Um, this is possible. Uh, and then the second part is this is possible because, and I know that because I've done it. And that's the part that seems like there's some question marks about. For, for, or there's there's yeah. some things you're challenging with respect to that. What, what do you mean? What yeah, do you? Mean? Yeah. What do you mean? Can you say a little bit more about that? Because when you, as you started describing sure, it's that, re- it's really interesting, and I, I find it a little bit amusing
1: as well. Because um, what they're doing is to take words like the Theravada word "arhat," which is a fully enlightened being, and saying, "I'm an arhat." you know, or you're an arhat, or you're, you know, some other high level of attainment. Um, and to use those words in a way that has a different meaning than the meaning that's understood in those countries and in that tradition, at least it is as it is now. I don't know how the meaning was in the time of the Buddha, but you can read a lot about it, and it says you're someone... Uh, in that state, for example, where there is never a moment arising of fear or confusion or desire of any form or any kind, um, and the heart is absolutely pure. And I don't know that i you even met someone like that. It may be that it's actually a description of um, an ideal rather than, mm. you know, an archetype, rather than the reality of it. Mm. Um, but it's sort of a funny thing for somebody to claim it in a way, because um, it's simply just a different use of language. It does it's it's not a say, okay, I, I could say I'm a um take a, a Hindu term or I could say I'm a saint. Um well what does that mean to say I'm a saint? Um, I might use it in a very different way than the Catholics might do when they decide who they're gonna canonize and be a saint, where you have to perform miracles or something like that. I eat and walk, I stick not out and say, that's enough of it. So they're really redefining it in a different way, but then finding it's the same thing. And that's kind of interesting. I think the good part is encouraging people that the that waking is really possible. And the sort of fun part, and slightly funny, is that people are saying, I'm not this great enlightened person, but also, you know, I prefer dark beer to light beer, and I do have problems in my relationship. And... I'm, uh, you know, I'm going through the same stuff as everybody else, but I'm enlightened. And, you know, that's an interesting question. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it is I'm really... It's an really... exciting thought, actually. It's fun. It just misleads new people a little bit who get very confused, but um, it's sort of trying to translate something new. I think it's a great thing to say. Awakening is possible. You can live in a much more awake way. Um, and then people want to place it on some old map and say, see, this really proves it because I fit the old map And It might be so. Um, but maybe it's better to just straightforwardly say, this is the experience I have. Um, what awakening has been like for me, how it's changed me, what has changed and what hasn't. I mean, one most wonderfully Awake people that I spent time with was um, in Maharaj, who was a uh, advisor teacher in Bombay that I spent time with over the course of three or four years. Um, and he, you know, was a remarkable teacher, and anyone interested could look him, especially his book, I Am That, which is one of the great Dharma books of modern time, dialogues with him. And somebody asked him one day when lunch was late, um, do you get irritated? You're a, you're a sage, a liberated being. Um, do you get irritated when lunch is late? And, and you know, do you get hungry? And is it difficult for you? And he said, all that arises. Irritation arises. Hunger arises. Um, all those same things. But somehow it not, has nothing to do with me. It's as if I'm the vast horizon of awareness in which this arises, and even not the vast horizon of awareness, that would be too limiting to describe who I am because I am everything and nothing. Um, and so, of course, different things happen, with it, but it has nothing to do with who I or who you are, who we really are. When somebody said, well, you're old now, you know, you're in your 80s, what do you think about your upcoming death? And he laughed and he said, death... He said, You're saying that I am this meat body, this body that's made of japatis and, you know, lentil doll and curries and so forth. You think that's who I am? It has nothing to do with me. This is just a physical body. That's not who I am. Who I am is timeless. I, wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. And you want to paint me to this body and worry about it dying? It has nothing to do with me. And so it was very interesting because his awakening was really more of a shift of identity um, from being identified with body, mind, thoughts, with the whole identity of self, to the timeless awareness that is both emptiness um, and love. Uh, and um, yeah, so the irritation, and hunger still arise. So what? Um, so that becomes an so interesting is it, is the path to. Purify yourself so things no longer arise? The answer is yes. Is the path to take the full painted glory of your humanity and hold it with uh, love and lightly without identification um, and just to see this is the way human life is? The answer is yes. In fact, with a lot of these paradoxes, the answer is yes and yes and yes. Um, They're different dimensions of this crystal of awakening.
0: Okay, and, 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 and that's, that sort of um, pr- prompts this question for me, which g- goes back, actually, to what you're saying in the beginning about these different, um, different ways of experiencing and understanding awakening. And that is, you know, that and then the question for me is, um, g- given that, yes, all of these things uh, are true, all of these ways of experiencing are, are true, and that people do experience them, um, then the, the question come becomes, um, w- what is uh, what is an appropriate awakening for this time, for this place, for whoever it is in their context? You know wh- what? Uh, you know it's that whole Zen koan. You know yeah, what? What are the yeah, teachings yeah. of all the Buddhas? You know an appropriate well, I, I response. Kind of, I kind of feel bad about this podcast because we started
1: with something really pretty esoteric, a harvest of insight <laughs> I launched in this whole thing about enlightenment. Um, and maybe it would be better to have that at the end of the podcast, that question rather at the beginning, because really what liberates people is much closer to home. Um, it's establishing some kind of a training or practice that helps you be awake and mindful and compassionate right where you are. Um, and I like the translation of mindfulness uh, that Rambas uses these days, which is loving awareness. That in any moment, you can either be caught in the circumstances of your life, or you can become the loving awareness, the witness of it with kindness and love, and say, oh yeah, this is interesting. Here we are. And then instead of being in reaction or fear or confusion and so forth, um, you're able to move through the world with greater freedom when you couple some practice or training in mindful, loving awareness with the other parts of spiritual paths that are described everywhere, um, which include the practice of um, generosity or you know, care, compassion for, for all those around you, which include um, the commitment to not cause harm, because whether it's through words or deeds, the causing of harm, deliberately anyway, um it means you're really caught up in something, lost, and you've lost your way. So if you practice um, in your speech and in your life not to cause harm to other beings, and this is a practice of disidentification, of awareness, of being loving awareness. If you practice generosity um, and break down the boundaries of what you have and who you take yourself to be and others around you, um, that also is a a beautiful training. If you practice great gratitude, if you practice forgiveness, if you practice compassion. Those practices in your work, with your kids, in your family, um, they invite a shift to become loving awareness, and that can
0: work anywhere. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. And I guess the um, you know, the kind of the challenge always is is you know, <laughs> knowing when when. When those practices are are, are are really transformative, and when they're they're more um, they become like embellishments on our on our current identity, like I am a generous person, or I am forgiving, or I am enlightened because I've experienced I don't think, these I don't,
1: things. I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a problem because um, the ego or the self always does. You, you mm. know, you have this great insight or this beautiful opening, and I'm sorry that some part of you says cool, I can't wait to tell somebody else <laughs> how great that is and so forth. So that's not a problem. That's just another thing to be aware of with loving awareness and say, oh yeah, in the insecurity of being a human being, I want to find some ground. And actually, the world is groundless. Um, and you can relax in that unknowing. And what my teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to talk about, he said, we um, call it the wisdom of uncertainty. You'd ask him a question about anything, about enlightenment or the path or how you should practice or, you know, who who he was or whatever, and he'd say, it's uncertain, isn't it? And he would just laugh. He'd say, it's uncertain. Relax. And relax with the uncertainty of it. So it's totally fine that all those thoughts are natural. I don't worry about that. They're just part of the game of becoming aware. And then you see that and you say, all right, there's the self-operating, thank you, and... You treat it with kindness. It's your pet, so to speak. Um, and you know that you are the loving awareness, you're the space of awareness that can be the witnessing of, of all of it. Um, you, and, and, you know, and one of the good things from some of these contemporary accounts and teachers is they encourage people to say, Yes, you can really embody this. And I, I share that. You can. Um, and then the other part is, it's hard. You get lost, you get frightened, which is why it's good to have community. Mm. You know, my granddaddy Lamont says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. So, you know, it's easy to get caught in our history and trauma and past patterns. So you have community, you have other people who remind you of the vastness and the mystery when you've lost it. Um, You have simple practices, a heart practice of compassion, loving kindness, forgiveness. And the practice of of awareness itself, of loving awareness, and it changes you. Um, And you can move through the world with a greater and greater trust and a greater and greater sense of the freedom that is your true nature,
0: that is your birthright. All right. Thank you, Jack. I I really appreciate your uh, coming on to uh, explore some of these things and um, I, I know that the progress of insight is esoteric, but it's also um, it's been a central theme through our kind of explorations here on Buddhist geeks, and f- certainly um, for, for me in my own practice and teaching. So it's uh, it feels like an important thing to touch upon and kind of explore from different angles. And I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you,
1: Vincent. I'm gonna add a, another little piece Please. which may be helpful to those who are listening because in a way um it goes back to the theme that I started talking about of the plural of enlightenment um and maybe you can post a link to that chapter in being on the Dharma sure enlightenments um you know make catch a pdf or something and one link link to it um but this is a story I was at a teachers' conference that I helped to organize, um, and have many over the years, some with the Dalai Lama, Dharamsala, others with some hundreds of teachers in the West, all looking at what what we're teaching, how what, what's skillful, what can we learn from one another, and so forth. And at this particular conference, there was a real conflict between the most conservative members of the community, or the teachers' council, those who gathered, and the ones who were the more uh, adaptive and revolutionaries in some way. Um, and uh, we had, mm-hmm. as a moderator for the meeting, um, Robert Hall, who's a psychiatrist and amazing gestalt therapist for 50 years, and um, but also a, a very fine spiritual teacher. Um, and so there was mm-hmm. conflict and fight. Um, and uh, at one point he said, okay, well, let's change the game here. I'd like to ask the most passionate um, uh, uh, kind of revolutionary who says we should get rid of all the words of Buddhism and we should change the practices so they're completely modern and not let people get hung up in all these old um, languages and forms and so forth um, and just direct directly to freedom and forget the you know, the, the formal teachings of uh, sila and virtue and Donna, not because they're not valuable, but that's an old language. Um, and he was really fighting against people who wanted to preserve this wonderful old tradition. Robert said, would you please um, do an experiment and leave the room for a bit? So he was sent out. And then uh, Robert asked, how will it be if um, we remove him as a teacher? And first everyone said, it's kind of a relief because he's a firebrand and a bit of a troublemaker and always pushing the edges and trying to adapt in new ways, some of which are skillful some of which aren't, um, and will it just be so much easier to not have that conflict. And then Robert asked the next more compelling question. Well, if he's gone, um, how would it change what you do? And all of a sudden, some people spoke and, up and said, well... If he weren't part of the larger group, then I would probably want to do some of those experiments myself. There's a way of adapting and finding new language. And without him pushing us, I still feel it's important. I would do it. I might do a bit more of it. And then he was brought back in the room, and the most conservative person was thrown out, said, all right, would you leave? Said Robert said, so suppose this person, who's a kind of pain in the butt at times, because he says we have to follow what the Buddha said and in the text, we have to do it, not lose the tradition. If he weren't here, like the other fellow, he was also full of quite a lot of uh, um, judgments about what was right and what was wrong. How would you all be? And people said, well, again, it would be a relief. We wouldn't be judged so much. We wouldn't be... um, viewed as apostate, state is not, you know, following the tradition and so forth. So there'd be less conflict and that would be easier. But then Robert asked the next question, how about um, his absence? How would it affect you and how you all teach? And I can remember several people saying, well, if he wasn't here, I would teach the texts more. I would go back to the old sutras, um, I would bring in more of those traditional teachings because I don't want them to be lost, um, and he's carrying that. Um, and if he weren't carrying it, I or we would need to. And very soon, he was brought back in the room. It became apparent that nobody was right in this conversation, but that they were. We were all part of a mandala of awakening um, that has existed. Timeless, that's archetypal. Um, and certainly in the, in the stories you read of the day the Buddha died, in the Buddhist tradition, there are those who wanted to conserve it just exactly as it was the way the Buddha taught. And there were, there were those who wanted to change the rules and adapt it as it moved along. And those conservators and adapters have been in dialogue. In fact, we're probably the same people who were not terribly good students and now we got reborn again and we get to practice <laughs> with one another, you know, in another century. But that they're we're actually all part of a whole and that we need those who conserve conserve things and we need those who are flexible and dynamic and adapt. And in fact, they are part of the model of awakening that is our human heritage. Um, and when you're lost in your position in it, like Ajahn Chah being lost in one of those Movies that his master Bun talked about, um, you know, you fight and you think you're the right way. But when you understand, um, whether in that position or someone who's observing, you can say, oh, yeah, this is a place that really serves, but it's not the whole story. The story is actually much more of a model and dynamic. And when you understand that, then you become easier about these different traditions and practices and realize that they're all fingers pointing to the moon, they're all skillful means, Um, conserving, finding new forms, adapting, are all people's attempts to communicate some great mystery that they love and that they want other people to awaken to. So I hope that that's helpful for people, is that kind of a perspective.
0: After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.